I've entitled this message today, Holy God. Uh, I had been planning, we were, if you use the Bible reading notes, we, my plan was that in July and August we were going, working our way through the book of Isaiah, uh, and then I was going to do five sermons on the five Sundays I'd be here over July and August on the book of Isaiah to help give you a sense of it as well, but COVID took things in a different direction, um, but God willing, uh, the reading notes in September will go back to Isaiah. But I hope even what we're looking at today and the couple other Sundays we'll be looking at Isaiah will give you a wee bit of a background. Now, this vision that Isaiah has, this very famous vision, was at a very significant time for him and for the nation of Judah. We're told here at the beginning that Uzziah, the king, had died. It was the year that he died. Uzziah became king when he was just 16 years of age, and he reigned for 52 years. And he is one of the best, he's one of the most faithful kings that the people of Judah, the southern part of Israel, they knew. If you look in 2 Kings 15, he's called by the name Azariah, and he's also, you can read about it in 2 Chronicles 26. So, Uzziah, also known as Azariah. So, he was a good king, reigned for 52 years, but sadly, in his latter years, he became proud. And he sought to offer in the temple incense to the Lord, which was the duty of the priests alone. But he wanted to do it himself. And although he was opposed by the chief priest and 80 other priests that came to him and they tried to stop him. He was stubborn, and he wanted to persevere in doing what he wanted to do. And in the end, he was struck down by the Lord with leprosy. And the remainder of his life was lived in isolation and in shame. Now, here in Isaiah 6, Isaiah's vision of the Lord, it was taking place in the very temple where Uzziah had been struck down. And maybe as Uzziah came in and was mourning the death of this king, he was maybe thinking, well, there's the very point where he was struck down by God with leprosy. So the death of this king, who had been such a good king, who had reigned for so long, but sadly his latter years were a shame, it brought a great time of uncertainty. For Isaiah and the people of Judah. And when you face a time of uncertainty in your personal life, or we face a time of uncertainty in the life of our nation, what do we need? Well, above all, we need a vision of God. And that's the first thing we're going to look at here, Isaiah's vision of God in verses 1 to 4. I have three points today, uh, his vision of God, and then we'll go on and see his vision of himself, and then his vision of grace. I'm not sure we're going to get through it all today, but we'll see how far we get. But I want to take time at this, because this is a, such a significant subject. So, first thing as we think of his vision of God, we see the exalted king in verse 1. It says there, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up on the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah, during this year of Uzziah's death, 
during this time of a king who in the end ended with failure, he now receives a picture of the king who is on the throne, who is high and exalted, who is above every earthly king, and who will never end in failure. Now, if you notice this, how the Lord is described, it says, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. If you look at that, the word Lord, after the first capital, the rest of it is in lower case. Now, if you went on, for example, at the end of verse 5, you see that the word Lord is always in capitals. This was to show something here. There are two words for the Lord that are used in the Old Testament. When it's in capitals, all in capitals, it's the word that God introduced Himself to Moses at the burning bush, Yahweh, I am who I am. But when it's in lower letters after the first capital, it's a word Adonai, which basically means sovereign one, king. And so, the way Isaiah is introduced is not the way God is most normally introduced as Yahweh. He's introduced as Adonai, the sovereign one, the king. And this is what Isaiah needed at a time when the king Uzziah had failed and messed up. He's been introduced to a king who rules over all, who never will fail, who will never mess up. And that's who we need to see. That's who we need to have faith in. That's who we need to trust in, the king who will never fail. But who is it that Isaiah saw upon this throne? Who is this king who is high and exalted? Who is this king whose train filled the temple? I don't know how anybody here remembers the coronation of Queen uh, Elizabeth, uh, but most of us maybe have seen it in recent days, some pictures of it. But one of the most amazing things about that coronation was the train that she had. Not a choo-choo train, young people, but it was this great robe that stretched out for many, many meters behind her, and there had to be pages to help carry it along. And in many ways, in ancient days, the, the train, the length of your robe, spoke of your greatness. So here is a king who's high and exalted, whose train fills the whole vast temple. This is a king of such amazing majesty. But who is this king? Well, in John 12 and verse 41, John speaks about Jesus and says this, Isaiah said these things, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory did Isaiah see? It was the glory of Jesus. It is the glory of the Son of God. Isaiah saw the Son of God, and later on Paul would speak of Jesus after he died and rose from the grave and then ascended to heaven, speaks of him being returned to his place of rule and authority. And you see here, Ephesians chapter 1, he says, he worked in Christ, that's God's power, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church or for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so what Isaiah saw was a vision of where Christ is now. He is in heaven. He's in the place of glory, far above all rule and authorities and kings who reign. It's a picture of a Christ who rules over everything, a Christ who is sovereign, a Christ who's in total control, in total control of everything that happens in this world in total control of everything that happens in your life and mine. In this time when Isaiah was disappointed with Uzziah and his death, when he was looking to a future that seemed uncertain, he needed this vision of Christ, the Son of God, who rules over everything. You know, in Isaiah's vision, we maybe would want him to say, Isaiah, what did this exalted king look like? What did he look like? What was his face like? And he can't describe him. There aren't words enough to describe the glory of Christ. All he could say was he was high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He couldn't grasp, he couldn't put into words the wonder of this king who reigns. By faith, we need to hold on to this vision of Christ. So, he is the exalted king. That's the first thing in verse 1. Secondly, he is the worshipped king in verses 2 to 3. Let's read those together. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now we learn so much here from these seraphim. These are glorious, angelic creatures. There are two types of angels mentioned in the Bible there are the cherubim we read about when Adam and Eve were put out of the Garden of Eden and they guarded the way into the garden and the way to the tree of life. They were also pictured on the curtains in the temple. These were angelic creatures who protected the presence of God, the cherubim. And then there are the seraphim who are mentioned here. Now, not all angels have wings, but these angels, these seraphim, have six wings, three pairs. And what they do with each of their pair of wings is really interesting. First of all, we read that with two, he covered his face. His face. The word seraphim, the, the singular of it is, is seraph. The word means burning or bright ones. When God made his creatures, he made his creatures fit for their 
habitation where they would live. He made fish with gills and fins and that could live in the sea. He made birds with feathers and wings so they could live in the air. He made us the way we are so we live in this on land. And these seraphim, these burning ones, these glorious creatures were made to dwell in the presence of God. Sometimes angels, particularly cherubim, or cherubim in the singular, are presented these cuddly wee things. When angels showed up in the Bible, people were terrified. These were awesome beings. You think of how in, in Matthew 28, when it speaks about the, the stone being rolled away from the tomb by the angels, these tough Roman soldiers fell down like dead men in the presence of these angels. These are glorious, majestic creatures. These are bright ones. These are glorious. These are creatures you look at, you, you think they were on fire. They're, they're burning with the, something of the majesty of God. And yet, with two wings, they covered their faces because they would not look upon the glory of God. It was too much for them even to behold. And this reminds us that while in God's presence, it's something we should enjoy. There always needs to be a cautiousness in how we approach God and how we conduct ourselves because God is on a level beyond us. With two, they covered their eyes. They, they hid from this glorious God. These glorious, majestic angels wouldn't look upon this God. He was so full of splendor. Secondly, with two, he covered his feet, it says. The point of this, I think, is not just that their wings covered their feet, it, it covered their whole body. These angels wanted to be out of the picture. They didn't want the focus of the attention to be on them. They didn't deserve to be the focus of attention. The focus of the attention had to be on the Lord, the one who's on the throne. It's as if they're saying, don't look at us. We're not important. We're not significant. God alone is the one to be focused on. Don't be distracted by us. Our job is to point you to Him. Look at Him. Look at this glorious God. He deserves all the focus, all the attention, all of the praise. One of the impacts of sin is that in a person's thinking, it brings the attention, it brings the focus away from God to ourselves. That we word sin, the, the central letter of sin is I. Think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When they sinned, it was then they were aware that they were naked. They became self-aware when they sinned in a way that they weren't before. Before they sinned, they weren't looking at themselves. They were focused on God and what God had called them to be. But when they sinned, the eyes went from looking out to looking in. They became self-centered, self-focused. But here we see these perfect 
majestic creatures who are flawless, who have no sin, they've got it right. Their focus is not on themselves. And they want the focus of others not to be on themselves. They want the focus to be fully on God. And when we are redeemed, when we come and experience rebirth, when God comes and changes us with sin, that's part of His purpose, that we lose focus on ourselves, that life is not all about us at the center, but all about God at the center. You see, that when you want to describe sin, sin isn't just people committing adultery or people killing and murdering and so forth. Sin is basically me at the center, the world revolving around me. You think of a little child that the world revolves about them and what they want, and yet that's a picture of us all because of sin. And that's not the way it should be. We know we have been saved. We know we have been changed when the picture is all about, becomes more and more about God. Now, we don't reach that perfectly, but that should be the goal. That's one of the reasons why you should keep reading your Bible day by day. Why do you read your Bible? Just to get a wee word of encouragement or guidance. Yes, you want that word of encouragement and guidance, but you read your Bible to fill your mind with the truth of God so that your thinking is centered on God and not on self. So we learn from these majestic creatures that with two, they cover their eyes. It speaks of a God who's so glorious. With two, they cover their whole bodies. The focus isn't on self. And then with two wings, they flew. It speaks of their activity. Their knowledge of the Lord means they, they can't be static. They're, they're always on the go. They, they have to be busy in bringing glory and honor to the Lord. Oh, don't we learn so much from these creatures here? They teach us that God is more awesome than we can imagine. God should be at the center of our thinking. And our whole life, our whole activity should be about bringing honor to Him. Remember what Paul said, and this was a, a man, remember, who was a sinner. But a sinner saved by grace. He says, for me to live is Christ. That's what salvation did to him. Prior to that, his life was about religion. His life was about fulfilling his own desires. But now when he's saved, for me to live is Christ, and therefore to die is gain. So we see the exalted king. We see the, the worshiped God. And then we see the, the awesome Lord. And the good news for you is after this point, I'm going to stop. I'm going to take another Sunday on this, and we're not going to deal with the whole chapter or section today. But let's look at the awesome Lord. Let's go back to verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, let's think about what these wonderful angels were saying. The first thing is they cried out, holy, holy, holy. Now, that word holy, it carries with it at least three truths about God. The first truth is it speaks about God's purity. 
It speaks about God being perfectly clean, God not having sin or evil in his life. John, in his first letter, speaks of how God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. And that sense of being pure without imperfection, perfect in all of his way. And we, I think when we think of the word holy, that's our primary thought of purity and being clean, God being perfectly clean and pure. But that is not the primary meaning of holy. It's part of it. It's not just about being morally perfect as God is. It's something more than that. So, the second thing we learn about the word holy, it is separateness. God being separated from us, God being removed from us, God being set apart from us. The word holy carries the idea of being different. You think of people or, or things in the Bible which are called to be holy, things that were used in the temple for worship. They were set apart from common use for a different use. And the word holy speaks of God being removed from us, different from us. So, it's not just that God is pure and clean. He's different. And that's important because in our thinking of God, we we want to bring God to our level. We want to think of God in our own terms. That's why sometimes people talk about the, the man upstairs when they speak of God. You should never think of God that way, the man upstairs. That's to bring God into our thinking in our level. So, holy speaks of being purity. It speaks of separateness. And thirdly, it speaks of transcend, transcendence. I wanted to use a simpler word, but I couldn't think of a simpler word that really would get this across. To, for God to be transcendent, the word means to cross a boundary, to cross a line. It speaks of God being on a totally different level to us. It's a word which means that God is a cut above. Maybe you're at a, a gathering sometime and there's somebody comes in and they're dressed to the nines or dressed up on, on a totally different level the way they're dressed. Or maybe use the idea of sport. You, sometimes you talk about footballers and when they first were discovered, people watched them as a young person playing and they were on a totally different level. They were a cut above. And this is the idea of God. God is on a totally different level from us. God is high and exalted. Even these glorious angels, these seraphim, these burning ones, He's on a totally different level from them. So, God is so far removed from us and more than we can ever imagine. And even our greatest thoughts of God really are not worthy of the God who He is. He is so above us. So, that word holy means that God is pure, He's separate, 
He's transcendent. He's above us on a totally different level. Now, notice what the angels say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of glory. Now, in the Bible, they repeat things for emphasis. If you are wanting to emphasize something, maybe you're writing something and you want to emphasize something, you put something, if you're using a computer, you put it in bold print or you underline it or you put it in italics or you use a highlighter to highlight it to make it stand out. In the Hebrew language, they emphasize things by repeating. For example, you know John 3 when Jesus says, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, you must be born again. He repeated it. He said the same word, truly, twice. And that happens in the Bible. Things are repeated in order for emphasis. But rarely in the Bible are things said three times. Normally things are said twice for emphasis. But rarely are things said three times. And never in the Bible is anything said three times about the nature of God, except here and in Revelation when it says God is holy. It's as if they're saying God's purity, God's difference from us, God being above us is on a level beyond anything you can imagine. It never says in the Bible, God is love, love, love. It says God is love, but it doesn't repeat it. It never says in the Bible, God is righteous three times, or God is just three times. But it says that about holiness. And what it is getting is that the very essence of God, is in this word holiness. This God who Isaiah saw, this God whose presence we come into today is pure, different from us, above us, in a way that is beyond anything we can truly grasp. And it goes on. It goes on and it says here, look at the end of verse 3, what he say about him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So this is the second term about God that used, this God of glory. That word glory is a word which basically means weight. It means substance. It speaks to the worth of we have some uh, fairly solid kitchen chairs. If you lift them, they're quite heavy. And if you have a chair like that and it's heavy, you think that's of substance, that's of worth. And that's the idea here. And what it's saying is the whole world, the whole world around us speaks of this God's glory. It speaks of this God's worth. It speaks of the value of this God. In the world that he has made, in the stars that he's put in the skies, in the, the beauty of creation, the, the mountains, the vegetation, even human beings and all the animals, they all point, what an amazing God there is. And yet, doesn't the world today want to shut that out? 
Doesn't the world today want to try and have a world in which God's glory is not there, in which God doesn't exist? That's behind so much of this theories about evolution and Big Bang and stuff. It's trying to put God out of the picture. They look at these stars, these, this recent telescope, showed, and they look at this amazing picture, and the Christian looks at it and sees what an amazing God we have. But the unbeliever just looks and they're blinded to the truth. Do you know that lovely hymn, Love with Everlasting Love? Do you remember these words? Heaven above is deeper blue, earth around is sweeter green, that which glows in every hue, Christless eyes have never seen. Birds in song his glory show, flowers with richer beauty shine. Since I know as now I know, I am his and he is mine. Christless eyes just don't grasp it. But the eyes which have been in opened by the grace of Christ, they do grasp it. God's glory is hidden from sinners. They're blind to this. They fail to see the wonder of God in the world around them. The Reformation, one of the slogans of the Reformation was, after darkness, light. And that's a picture of salvation. It causes us to open our eyes. Look the world around us in a different way and see the glory, the worth of God and all that's been made. Psalm 19 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. As if it's saying those stars, the sun and the moon, they're shouting out to you, we have a great God. We have an amazing creator. We have this God of glory who you are to bow before, who you are to worship, to whom you're to give your all. Now, look at in verse 4. What was the result of the cry of these angels about the holiness and the glory of this God? And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The result of the presence of this God who is holy and glorious was that the whole earth around them as he came down, it shook at his presence. It's the same thing you read about in Exodus 19 and 20 at the giving of the Ten Commandments. God came down upon a great mountain and the whole mountain shook at his presence. He is a God who has a splendor, a majesty, a glory, a holiness that is truly awesome. You know the second commandment about graven images? It's not really about worshiping false gods. The, the first commandment is about not worshiping false gods. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment is about making God out to be less than he truly is. It was not the mistake of Aaron in making the golden calf. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt, he said. He was bringing God down to be less than he is. 
And that is what the devil is constantly wanting to do. That is what sin will do in our life. And what's the answer? Back to that slogan of the Reformation, after darkness light. It's the light, it's the truth of God's Word as we dwell in it. We begin to have a right knowledge of God. And let me say this to you as I finish this morning. John Calvin said, the the greatest need of man is a right knowledge of God and then a right knowledge of Himself. And so here we begin by looking at Isaiah's right knowledge of God. And in a few weeks' time, we'll come back and then see His right knowledge of Himself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your truth. Oh, Father, grant that we would know something what it means, that You are holy, 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 that we'll grasp something of Your glory. Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds. Help us not to worship an image, but to know the truth. And like Isaiah of old, just to fall in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.